think we can begin. And uh, let's begin with a prayer. And we'll use a verse from uh, Luther's, one of Luther's Trinitarian hymns. Triune God, be thou our stay, O let us perish never. Cleanse us from our sins, we pray, and grant us life forever. Keep us from the evil one, uphold our faith most holy, grant us to trust thee solely with humble hearts and lowly. Let us put God's armor on, with all true Christian running our heavenly race and shunning the devil's wiles and cunning. Amen, amen, this be done. So sing we, alleluia. Amen. We want to continue our study this morning of Acts chapter 2, and I'll admit I had to do a double take in the early service because we have part of this reading, and then it skips several verses. And I thought, oh no, what did I misread when I was planning for this morning? Um, but we want to begin at Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Those of you who are joining us after summer travel, um, we've looked at the events that uh, St. Luke describes as happening on that first Christian Pentecost as the fellowship of the followers of Jesus are gathered together, uh, about 120 in number, uh, and uh, we hear the things we associate with Pentecost Day, the sound like a rushing wind, the, the tongues like flames of fire, um, and then the speaking in other languages. Uh, at, as the crowd gathers for these remarkable events, uh, mostly drawn together by the unusual noise they're hearing, uh, they begin to give their own opinions of what's going on. And that's where we ended last time. Uh, most people, it says, didn't have a clue. They had no resources available to them to explain what was happening. Uh, others, however, uh, came to a different conclusion. That's verse 13. Uh, these men have been into the new wine. Remember, Pentecost was a harvest festival. That's uh, when you celebrate the beginning of that year's gathering in of things uh, and uh, tasting the new wine, seeing if it was going to be a good vintage or not, was a traditional part of that. Uh, but they thought these men had gotten in a little early and a little too deep. Um, and we'll pick it up then at verse 14. And uh, I'd like to ask someone to read uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 for us. Uh, please. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea... And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Okay, thank you. So we'll uh, look at a few points we want to note. Again, this is really introductory to the message that's going to follow. Uh, but we're told Peter stands up with the eleven. Up until this point, we've been asking the question again and again, uh, how many people are we talking about? Who is the they uh, that Luke will describe when they had come together? Uh, and we noted that he's not very specific. But now at this point, he gets quite specific. Peter stands up 
and the 11 stand with him. Uh, why do you think it's so important at this point that we know exactly who's speaking? Okay, this is a very special group. Uh, now, from this point on, Luke will refer to these men as the apostles, and to the larger gathering of the church, we would say, as the disciples. Uh, but these are those men who were especially appointed and charged with this special responsibility. Uh, remember, they restored the number to 12, so that now you can have Peter and the other 11 once again. Um, what were they told other than to wait in Jerusalem that they would do? Receive power from on high. Okay, they'll receive power to do what? Okay, to preach, to be his witnesses. So even though all Christians, the whole church, will take this message forward, this message of uh, repentance and forgiveness, uh, these 12 men especially are charged with uh, that sort of authoritative witness as those who were with Jesus throughout his ministry. They were witnesses of his death and resurrection. And so the words that follow aren't just words from the crowd or words from Christians in general, uh, but words from these particular men that Jesus singled out uh, to carry his message forward. Uh, and that takes us right back to the name of this book. Right? This is the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, now we'll see what these apostles are going to do um, now that they've been uh, filled with this power. Uh, there's one other uh, feature of this that we may not recall. Uh, I don't hear it talked about prominently in our circles or preached about very often. But back in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus had told these men that they would do what one day? These, this group of 12 apostles. They were going to have special reserved seats. What were they going to do? They were going to sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, I agree with those who think there's at least a hint of that here as well. Uh, that these men are standing before, now gathered Israel. Uh, and they're going to speak a word that includes both judgment and promise. Uh, and this is their office. No one says, uh, why are you doing this? What gives you the right to speak to us? Um, but they, they simply carry out uh, the, that task to which their Lord had called them. Okay, Peter lifts up his voice. Uh, we're already used to this new Peter from Acts chapter 1, uh, this Peter who will proclaim and interpret and imply, apply God's word. Um, and uh, so that doesn't uh, frighten us anymore the way it did back in the gospel. Um, and uh, again, uh, what's the situation we're to picture? They must be in some public place. Uh, where this large crowd of thousands can gather around a large group that's already in the hundreds uh, and hear Peter. He lifts up his voice um, and uh, speaks to them. Uh, 
Now, it's very important as you look at the speeches in Acts to note each time what the audience is. To what people is this particular message being addressed? Because they're not all the same. And if you read them carefully, you'll see that in each situation, the way this word is presented changes a little bit. Now, who is the audience here in this first speech? Okay, men of Judea, uh, that's both a sort of national political category as well as this identity of these are the people of God who live in Judea. Uh, but notice Peter doesn't want to confuse anybody or make anyone think he's only speaking to those who have what we might say is Judean citizenship, even though that wasn't really a category then. So he also says what? Okay, and that will include what other people besides strictly Judeans? Yeah, this is where that, that word dwell seems to mean more clearly, not this is where your permanent home is, but these are people who are staying in Jerusalem for a while. And why are they staying there? For those holidays, Passover and Pentecost. Uh, so Peter wants to be clear that this message he's going to give is for everyone who's gathered here. Uh, but still, in terms of ethnicity, we're thinking of Jews at this point. Uh, it mentioned proselytes up above, uh, but those who are connected already to the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's that's the audience Peter's going to speak to in this particular speech. Now, his, his words are very formal in the second half of verse 14. Uh, and the uh, let this be known to you is, is easy enough to understand. Uh, the give ear to is an interesting word. Uh, in Greek, it's a very graphic, suggestive word. It literally is to in ear something. Put this in your ear. Uh, that's what Peter's saying. Now we have an expression like that, right? What do we say? Lend me your ears. Uh, sort of the opposite side, right? I was thinking, stick it in your ear. Right? <laughs> isn't, isn't that what we say? So Peter's saying, Listen carefully. Stick these words in your ear. Um, don't let them just go by or go over your head. Now, this seems to be a particularly biblical word. As I look for examples of non-biblical authors who use this, and I couldn't find any given. So it occurs several times in the Greek of the Old Testament. Uh, only here, though, in the New Testament. So it sounds like one of these formal speeches uh, that one of God's prophets has delivered to Israel in the past. Uh, in fact, I want to turn back to the beginning of Joel in the Old Testament. Right after Hosea and right before Amos, if you don't have a thumb index.
We're going to have to spend a little time with Joel this morning because that's the text that Peter chooses. But his text comes from chapter 2, the very end of it. Notice, however, how Joel begins in chapter 1, his prophecy, this message he delivers begins actually in verse 2. So Joel chapter 1, verse 2. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Uh, When um, this was translated into Greek for wider circulation, uh, that give ear verb is the same one we have in Peter's speech in Acts chapter 2. And notice the inhabitants of the land. That's also that same verb for dwelling, all those of you who are staying here. Uh, So there are some close uh, verbal and sort of idea similarities between Joel 1 and Acts 2. Uh, And Peter will draw on this and we'll see the whole structure of the book of Joel uh, fits very nicely in what's been happening in Jerusalem. And Peter has some very particular reasons for choosing to talk more about that. Okay, then uh, back to Acts chapter 2 for another minute. Okay, what is it that Peter wants to make known to his hearers right off the bat? What's he going to explain to them? That they are not drunk. Now look at that verse again, verse 15. Does anything strike you as strange about that? Okay, yeah. What strikes you as strange about that? Yeah, exactly right. Uh, We have the same kind of joke. Uh, So Peter's response seems to imply, now if it were six at night, maybe, right? We'd have to go check their breath. Uh, Now, what do you expect Peter to say? Yes. Uh, not for Luke. He tends to use that consistently. Um, what, what would you expect Peter to say? These men aren't drunk because they're filled with the Spirit. These are men of God. These are the apostles of Jesus Christ. They wouldn't be drunk. Um, and yet he says, they're not drunk. Look at the time. It's only nine in the morning. Uh, why do you think he would do that? But that would appeal to this crowd because they don't know much about who these speakers are and, or their personality or their character or their you know, morality or anything. But, it, but it's just common sense that would appeal to them first. Yeah, so that appealing to the crowd is very important. And uh, 
they don't know which men they're listening to. Uh, so trying to appeal to their personal character is probably not going to get Peter very far anyway. Uh, but I think we are so sober and pious when we read the Bible, we never expect there to be anything funny in it. But this is actually a joke. People would have chuckled. It's only nine in the morning. They're not drunk yet. What did you say? No. Uh, so he's, he's using a little bit of humor, a little bit of lightness, uh, something that the whole crowd can understand and relate to. Uh, it's a little bit self-effacing, right? Uh, he's not, how dare you accuse us of being drunk? Um, and so he uh, apparently wins the hearing because at the end of this message, you see the crowd is still there. It's not like today where some, you know, people gather together and then a guy starts preaching and five minutes later you're down to one person standing there, right? So, so they do stay and listen. Uh, Peter is showing himself to be an effective speaker here, one who can relate uh, to everyday, ordinary people like you and uh, like me. Okay. Uh, then, verse 16 uh, he announces his text. Uh, and this is where he gives his real explanation of what's happening. Right? It's not that, but it's actually this. And in that little verse 16, Peter not only points us all back to Joel, but he says what? What Joel talked about is being fulfilled right here and now. This is happening right in front of your eyes. Uh, this is happening in your hearing, you can say. Uh, before we get into a, a little bit of a review of Joel, um, does that sound remotely familiar to you? Guy stands up for his first sermon, quotes a prophet, says this is being fulfilled in your hearing. Sounds exactly like Jesus' first sermon in Luke. Now he's using a different prophet, but the structure is very similar. Uh, he gets up, he talks about something a prophet announced that was going to happen, and he says, it's happening right now, and you're witnessing it. Uh, so we want to also keep that parallel in mind. Uh, there are many ways in which the ministry of the apostles will repeat the pattern of ministry that Jesus established through his own life and work. And I won't have the time to trace that with you, uh, but as you read through these next few chapters, notice how often it seems that this is just the same thing that happened to Jesus. And uh, in a even slightly different way, that same pattern will be uh, the case of, in the case of Paul's life. Uh, once he's brought to know the Lord Jesus, uh, then notice how the, the course of his ministry will follow a pattern that looks very much like that of our Lord himself. Uh, wasn't it only Luke that recorded that uh, statement by Jesus when he was reading Isaiah? Yes. Okay. So again, we see strong connections between Luke and Acts. Um, the announcement, the text, um, and the response. And we'll see that the response here is a little bit different. But first, um, 
Let's go back to Joel. What do you remember about the book of Joel? Notice I didn't really leave much space there because I didn't think anyone would probably remember anything about the book of Joel. Uh, someone said locusts. Uh, we're going to come back to that. That's an extremely important part of Joel. Um, but let's do a little bit of review here. Actually, I uh, needed to do this myself this past week. Uh, I haven't really ever gotten into the connections between this passage and Acts uh, at any great depth. Uh, regarding the date of Joel's prophecy, uh, Horace Hummel in the word becoming flesh declared ignoramus et ignorabimus. you have any Latin scholars here? That means we don't know and we won't ever know. Um, so there, Joel just doesn't give us many historical details to date his book. He doesn't mention uh, a specific reign of a king. Um, and uh, if you want to turn back to Joel chapter 1, um, you can see it just says the word of the Lord came to Joel. Yeah, so there, uh, if you, well, if we had more time, it'd be good to just read through the whole book of Joel because it's amazing how many connections there are between this short book of prophecy and the opening chapters of Acts. Uh, really, sort of the latter half of Luke's gospel and the opening of Acts. Uh, so we don't really know the date. Uh, if you have a study Bible, it may say, uh, Joel can be dated to the ninth, sixth. Okay, so that proves the point. Yeah, even your study Bibles may not agree. There are lots of different theories. Uh, some place Joel is one of the earliest of all the prophets. Uh, some place Joel is quite late. Um, I agree with uh, Hummel and that group that thinks he's uh, on the earlier side, uh, but we'll see that. Nailing down the date, on the one hand, probably wouldn't mean much to most of us anyway. On the other hand, doesn't really help us with the content of Joel uh, very much. Because for Joel, what's more important than the, the date, uh, what century we're in or what part of that century, uh, is the situation. Now, someone mentioned locusts. Um, what do you remember about the locusts? Okay. They had just been visited by a plague of locusts. Um, now that sounds like something that should happen to other nations, not Israel. But uh, this time it came upon them. Uh, it was so bad uh, that uh, Joel says what one kind of locust left, the next kind of locust ate. And what that kind left, the next kind ate. And you had these looks like waves of locusts coming in uh, so that ultimately um, the land was desolate, stripped bare. Uh, and look uh, briefly at uh, Joel 1 verse 12. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up 
and gladness dries up from the children of man. Their joy is as withered as the stubble of the crops in the field. Um, now this is about as far removed from the joy of Pentecost as you can get, right? Instead of a harvest, what do you have? Nothing. Now when you depend on a good harvest to get you through to the next harvest, that's a lot more serious than just not finding your favorite brand on the shelf. This is a matter of life and death. And, uh, and for Israel at this point, it looked like death. Now if you just sort of skim through uh, chapters 1 through 2, you find a pattern uh, where chapter 2 repeats um, the sort of thing you see in chapter 1, uh, talking about the desolation, the suffering of these people, which was as a result of their sin and unfaithfulness. Um, and then uh, he switches from just talking about sort of the immediate effects of this plague uh, to, as you see at the beginning of, of chapter 2, if you, if you have the ESV anyway, the day of the Lord. So when something terrible happens, what's our first response? An unprecedented uh, tragedy or cataclysm. What do we ask? Is this the end? Is the world coming to an end? Uh, this has never happened before. I don't remember people doing this when I was a child. Uh, where we grew up, people just didn't treat each other like this. What's happening? Uh, is the world coming to an end? Well, Joel says there is a connection here uh, between this kind of devastation uh, and the end. Uh, this is both warning and, we might say, a foretaste, a first experience, not just a preview, uh, but a first experience of what that end might look like. And for people who thought they were safe and secure, the prophet has to warn them that the day of the Lord might come with quite a surprise. It might actually be a great and terrible day, a day you want to sound the alarm. Um, and uh, he says it's not only like a day of the Lord, but it's like the day of the Lord. Um, the grasshoppers, uh, Hummel says, become more mysterious, sinister, and irresistible. Uh, and not many of us can appreciate this, but he says this passage here at the beginning of Joel 2 is some of the most exquisite Hebrew poetry in the whole Bible. And you even get some sense of that, that majesty uh, in and just the rhythm of those opening verses, blow a trumpet, sound an alarm, let all the inhabitants tremble, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Uh, you can imagine the dramatic impact this uh, would have had on its original hearers. But chapter 2 does not end with the announcement of terror. Uh, where does Joel take this warning? 
Uh, look at verse 12 of chapter 2 in Joel still. Uh, the message, the tone uh, changes here. What's that even now? What's that suggesting? It's not too late. Even now what? Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. When do we use this text? Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. This is really our theme for Lent uh, every year. But it stands out as that first word we hear from God's prophets. Return to the Lord. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So this is not judgment in the sense of vengeance. God is getting even. He's going to make you pay. It's judgment as warning, as prelude to call to repentance. And we'll see that's a very important theme for what happens when we get back to Acts. Um, so following that, uh, Joel will recount the restoration of the land. Now, historically, because the people do repent and return to the Lord, and uh, he restores the land for them so they survive, it can still be their home. Uh, and that restoration is so thorough, so complete, that uh, notice, um, let's see, where is it? Uh, verse 22, um, even the animals are going to be happy, right? Even the trees are going to rejoice. Uh, so this is a, a restoration that affects the whole creation. Uh, the earth, which suffers uh, from human sinfulness, uh, is restored and rejoices in God's goodness and graciousness. Uh, so that structure then is one of sort of announcement of judgment, call to repentance, and assurance of the grace and goodness of God. Uh, and we'll see that that kind of message fit perfectly with what Peter needed to say. Okay, um, uh, questions or thoughts on Joel before we turn back to Acts? Yes, uh, thank you, uh, because both of those are true. Um, I used to be able to use the illustration of a transparency projector, but now almost no one knows what that is anymore. Uh, but in certain of these passages, it's as if um, the speaker, God or his prophet, is overlaying one transparency on top of another. So we're looking at it and we're seeing the historical evidence, what's happening at that time, uh, but laid over on top of that is also this bigger pattern of judgment and restoration uh, that comes at the end of all history. Okay, uh, if, if it's possible, uh, keep your hand marking uh, one uh, Joel 2.28 and following, 
and then turn back to Acts 2 with your other hand. So if the people hearing Peter could recall Joel's story better than we do, and that's not for certain, of course, uh, when they say, this is what Joel described, how would that make you feel? Probably a little nervous because Joel describes a lot of bad things happening. Was he going to announce judgment on us all? What's this guy getting at? Uh, But then notice where he starts Uh, Verse 17 in Acts uh, is uh, coming from Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And let's do it this way. I will read from Acts, and I'll ask you to follow along in Joel. Now, the translations will show a little difference of wording here and there, probably. But there are some significant differences uh, that you should catch, too. Let me just start with verse 17. This is Peter now. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. We'll just stop there for the moment. Um, Did you catch any differences? Was the same? There are a couple slight differences that Peter has to make, partly because he's not telling the whole story, right? He's starting in the middle of the book. Now, Joel says, when will this happen? Afterward, Peter says, in the last days. Uh, So, why is Peter changing the Bible? Well, he's not really. Uh, Why does he have to tell his hearers that in the last days God will do this? Okay. His real point is that these last final days have arrived. And that's what he says, the strange things happening, the uh, noises, the speaking in tongues, that's indicating to you that we are now in these last days. But of course, we always do this. And if any of you um, read the lessons uh, in worship, you notice that sometimes the lectionary will have to say, instead of he, it'll say Jesus or Paul, um, because you're not getting the context of the passage. Uh, If you had read through Joel from start to finish, you would know that afterwards, all that's left is this period of final days before the final judgment of God is pronounced. Uh, But here again, Peter is interpreting God's word and applying it to the situation of these people gathered here uh, and explaining to them, this is now the situation we live in. And, of course, in Joel, there is no uh, says or God declares, uh, says says God. Um, But if you go back to see who's speaking, uh, you do eventually get to 
God declares, and this is the word of the Lord that came to Joel. So again, he's clarifying for his hearers that these aren't simply words of a prophet. The words that he's about to speak are whose words? God's words. And you need to hear them, put them in your ears as the words of God himself. Okay. Uh, then one more uh, passage, and now I think we can just uh, turn back to Acts and stay there for the rest of our morning. Uh, you have this long list of things that are going to happen. Uh, sons and daughters, young men, old men, uh, male servants, female servants. Um, why? Uh, it's interesting that people have read this uh, different ways. Uh, some have said, um, well, old men sleep a lot, right? So all they can do is dream. Uh, well, that's not really what Joel is getting at. That's not what Peter is getting at. Uh, what's the whole effect of a passage like this? Sons, daughters, young, old, slaves, male and female. Everybody. And everybody does what? Or receives what? Receives the Spirit and the gifts that the Spirit brings. He comes down on the whole people. Uh, again, we've seen several times this idea of inclusion, that this is for all. Um, and uh, here, uh, Peter uses Joel, and of course, both of them are speaking the words of the Lord to say that in this fulfillment, this comes upon all. And remember, that was one of the reasons uh, even the early church fathers said, um, you know, the Spirit comes down upon the 120, not just on the 12, uh, because otherwise, what sense would it make to cite this passage from Joel? Uh, one point that may not uh, strike us as clearly, depending on how well we actually know our Bible, is, first of all, what's strange about having the Spirit come upon sons, daughters, young men, old men? What's been Israel's experience up to this point? The Spirit comes upon prophets, very select individuals, special men who then speak for God. Now it seems like, who's a prophet? Everybody works as a prophet. The Spirit of God is present, uh, and this takes us way back to this longing for a, a kingdom of priests, right? A holy nation, not just a nation with a few individuals, uh, but a people uh, upon whom or in whom the Spirit of God dwells. And Peter says, that's happening right now, and you've heard with your own ears the demonstration of that. Um, when he gets to, when Joel and uh, then Peter in our text gets to the servants, um, Kyle in his Old Testament commentary points out that this is perhaps the most striking of all, because there's never been an incident in the Old Testament where the Spirit of the Lord came upon a slave. Uh, and that's really the word here. Uh, so that even the slaves in your household will be prophets. 
that shows how remarkably inclusive this act of God is. Um, and I wonder... Um, Do we take this seriously enough in our own time? Our Senate still has a lot of discussions about ministry and the office of the ministry and who can do what and who stands where. Um, Peter seems to be declaring that beginning at this moment, where does the Spirit of God rest? upon all, all the sons and daughters of Israel, all the young and old men, uh, even the slaves. Um, so I think this is an extremely important passage, and I want to come back to it uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, I want to spend just, well... We should look at 19 and 20. I don't want to give you the impression I'm skipping over those. Uh, these signs that happen uh, that Peter has talked about, um, what do they make you think of? Wonders in heaven, signs on the earth, blood, fire, vapor, smoke, uh, sun turned to darkness, the end of the world. And that's what it's supposed to make you think of. But if you've just finished reading Luke, it also makes you think of what? The crucifixion, when the sun also was turned to darkness. So you see again how God is weaving together the story of history and the story of the end of history. So when you see the sun turned to darkness at the beginning, at the middle of the day. You don't say, this is the end, but you should say, Lord, have mercy. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. Uh, this is a warning and uh, should take you right to that even now of Joel, that even now the Lord is calling you back. But I want to uh, finish up with verse 21 here. Uh, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, each part of that is very important for the rest of Acts. Um, starting with that everyone who, uh, we've said throughout that the emphasis on inclusion is very prominent here. Uh, the rest of the book of Acts is going to see the church wrestling with what big question? The Jew-Gentile Jew relationship. Is this gospel promise just for the sons of Abraham, the people of Israel, or is this for everyone? And we'll see that even the apostles will continue to wrestle with this question. As one that has to be answered before the church can move on. But notice here, it says everyone who. Who does that exclude? No one. And where is this coming from? Right, but it's setting is where? From what Bible passage? 
This is still Joel here. So this isn't something that just suddenly appears on the scene in the New Testament. This has been God's plan all along, that that time will come when all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay. Now, here's an easy question. Who is the Lord? Okay. Who do you think it is? Okay. Yeah. Now, have any of you been to early church? Did you use the Athanasian Creed? So you know there are not three lords, but one Lord, right? So this is not a problem for us. But already in the gospel, according to Luke, whenever we see the title Lord, we're left asking, who is that a reference to? Is this specifically to the Lord Jesus? Or is this to the Lord we know as Yahweh? And then suddenly it dawns on us, Yahweh and the Lord Jesus are one and the same. And it's not wrong, it's not idolatry, it's not polytheism to refer to this man as the Lord. Uh, so those references to the Lord are very important and they're meant to sort of play with us a little bit, to make us stop and think and ask, who is this referring to right here? Um, uh, but finally, I want to come back to the name. Um, the name will be an extremely important theme throughout the book of Acts, but especially in the first half of the book of Acts. Uh, and uh, notice uh, what all will happen uh, by the name. Uh, starting already back in Luke 24, remember Jesus had announced that in his name, repentance and the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed. Uh, that's happening right here, right, as Peter continues with his message. Uh, but in the next two chapters, uh, there will be a, a healing miracle, and they'll ask, by whose name did you do this? And the theme of name will come up again. Uh, so this is the first time we actually see that word in the book of Acts, and it introduces that connection back to Luke 24 uh, that will take us forward. Uh, so the name will even become sort of a shorthand word for the whole Christian proclamation. Uh, they shared with them the name. They proclaimed the name. And, of course, we could say our whole message is Jesus. Okay, did I save enough time? I think so for a little bit of a conclusion. I um, wanted to start by asking you a question uh, that some of the commentaries were wrestling with. Uh, when is the promise of Joel 2 fulfilled? And I'll give you the multiple choice answers that the commentary gave. So answer A, when is the promise fulfilled? On the first Christian Pentecost. So at this moment in Acts chapter 2. Okay, letter B. It's fulfilled in events that already begin in the time of Joel but come to their culmination here on this Pentecost day. And then C. 
The promise of Joel 2 is fulfilled beginning on the first Christian Pentecost and continuing throughout the whole Christian era. What do you think? A? How many for A? I think you've played this game before. <laughs> you know the teacher always gives the right answer last, right? So, so yeah, so beginning on, on that day, but continuing. Um, even looking around our group here, uh, let me ask, how many of you are of Jewish descent? Okay. One that uh, we say knows of it, some of us may be and not even know it anymore. Uh, so that means the vast majority of us in this room are not Jews. Why are we here? Because we're among all those who call on the name of the Lord. That salvation is for us. We're seeing this promise fulfilled in our generation. And uh, we've got maybe two or three or four maybe in here. Um, but in our time, this promise is still working itself out and being fulfilled. Um, and uh, let me... Uh, I already sort of mentioned that uh, the impact of that on discussions of ministry, uh, we can spend just another minute on that. Uh, well, let me tell you a, a brief little story. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was asked to write a little piece on Acts uh, for one of our publications and the theme of that issue was maintenance and mission. And I, I was supposed to write on mission and maintenance in the book of Acts. Uh, well, I wrote up my article and sent it in to the editor, and he said, I'm sorry, we can't use this. Well, in my article, I had said, there is good and bad mission, and there is good and bad maintenance. And he said, that's not what we're trying to say in this issue. And uh, I'll look this way. He also said, <clears throat> you've disagreed with a district president who wrote an earlier article. Now, it wasn't this one, but, but I know you don't want to offend that group. Uh, so we talked. And I explained why I had approached it the way I had. Uh, and then I threw in a couple extra quotes from Franzman, and then he said it would be okay. Uh, so they decided to use it after all. Uh, but the point is very significant. Uh, that when you look at who goes and speaks, it's not just these 12. And no one stops and asks, should I be doing this? But when Christians go from one place to a new place, what do they do without thinking about it, without asking? They share. They talk about their Lord. They proclaim his name. And you see that throughout the whole book of Acts. Um, I had also made the claim that the church in Acts never sends out a missionary. And uh, he told me I was wrong there. Uh, we did go back and clear that up, 
but uh, I won't be here to talk about Acts 13 with you, but we'll see what Dr. Cloa does with it. Um, <clears throat> so when you get to that, remember, say, I thought the church never sent anybody out, so you can ask him about that. Um, when we gather as a church, we gather as the people of God upon whom his spirit rests. And certainly we have different vocations in life, and that doesn't mean we all wear collars and we all stand at the front of the church, but it does mean we are all prophets of the Most High whose spirit works and speaks in us, uh, <clears throat> or should. Um, and that brings me to the last point. Uh, in a little devotion that begins a book called Alive with the Spirit, Franzman talks about this tragic parallel between Christmas and Pentecost. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Uh, but when Jesus comes, what happens? Do his own receive him? No. When the Spirit comes, what happens? People say, not, oh look, God is here. They say, they're drunk. They try to explain it away. <clears throat> so after talking about that, uh, he ends that little devotion with this question, which is really a challenge. And I thought it was so important that I printed it out on your worksheet. So please follow along with me. Still the Holy Spirit comes where and when it pleases God to send him to proclaim the wonderful works of God. How will we respond? Will we stop short at amazement and perplexity, shaking our heads at some of his stranger and lesser manifestations? Will we even stoop to mockery at those manifestations of the Spirit which strike us as bizarre so that we may ignore the rest of them and proceed to the usual order of business? Or shall we find grace to go the way Jesus went under the impulsion of the Spirit, the way into the wilderness to meet and overcome the tempter, the way into the scripture and obedience to the Father's voice heard in the scriptures, the way into self-consuming ministry, and so into that life over which death has no more authority? Shall we find grace to go the way which the first church went in obedience to the Spirit? The first church did not shrink from ecstasy, where ecstasy was the Spirit's gift, Neither did she shrink from obedience to the Spirit's will of love. The church that spoke with tongues and felt the earth shake under her feet at the Spirit's presence went soberly about the work of providing for her poor, selling property, and electing as officials men of spirit and wisdom to that end. Well, that's our challenge, right? If we're going to claim that this promise is still being fulfilled right here and right now, then we have to think seriously about what does that mean for us? And how do we respond to this question and challenge? Well, I will leave you with that. Uh, it's time for us to close. Any last thoughts uh, before we end? Yeah, so I think it's, well, 
you don't need my opinion, but it's a beautiful hymn. I think one of the most powerful in our hymnal. Um, okay, well, I'll leave you with those thoughts. Please ponder that as you continue to read your way through Acts and hopefully live your way through Acts as well. And let's close with a blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen.